0: A truism in life, things break down, things break down when the fundamentals are forgotten or maybe just outright scorned. Things break down when the fundamentals are forgotten or scorned. Uh, Case in point, news from Sochi, those of you who haven't been keeping track, there is a Winter Olympics in Russia going on right now. Uh, News bulletin I came across just, I'm sure some of you saw this a few days ago as well, uh, one headline covered it like this Olympic track worker injured when hit by bobsled. Now, it seems that as the men's two man bobsled was getting ready, uh, they had a forerunner. What that means is it's a sled that's going down just to kind of test the track and get things ready and make sure things are ready. The, the training, the practice runs were, were just getting going, and uh, we're not sure exactly what happened. The warning signal had been sounded. That's supposed to clear everybody out of the way, but it seemed that there was this ice maker, this man, standing down at the bottom of the track, just in the braking area, and that sled came down and smashed into him. A statement was released by the Olympic officials, quote, the worker is undergoing surgery for two open fractures in his legs. Kind of got to thinking what that means, and that's not good. Um... I don't mean to make light of this at all. I I just mean to use this as an illustration of this simple fact. uh, And and, it raises questions, I I think, as to how in the world that could happen. I mean, at an Olympic venue, right? People know what bobsleds do. They come down fast. You should get out of the way. I'm not trying to mock. It's it's, it's awful. It just begs a question. What in the world happened? How could you... Forget that. How could you just scorn the warning siren? Forget the fundamentals of what's going on here, where you are, and what's going on. They're fundamentals. And and things break down when you forget them or or scorn them. And that applies not just in the realm of athletics, but in the spiritual realm as well. In following Christ. There are fundamentals we need to hold to and understand and and hold to. And And that applies, by the way, to what, what I want to say about that, what we need to look into and, and learn about that here this morning, is that that applies to everyone in this room, wherever you may be spiritually. Whether you are an old, crusty, mature believer, or a young, freshly minted Christian, or you're struggling. That's not where you are, either one, in fact. You're, you're struggling. You're trying to figure things out. You're seeking. You're inquiring. You're You're wrestling. Well, all, th- all of us need to understand then what the basics of the Christian life are. If you're checking whether you know it and are growing in it, or whether you're just learning it, or whether you're exploring it, you, we need to know what the Christian life looks like, these fundamentals. So what does it look like? What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? If you have your Bible with you, we are now going to start a series, and it's going to take us a while, so settle in. I don't mean today, you are not going to do it all today, but Philippians. We're going to start a study in this letter that we know as the book of Philippians. Originally it was a letter uh, to a church. Um, if you're trying to find it, it's in the, the New Testament. Uh, that would be after, the, the. this book is after the Gospels and after Acts and after Romans and after the Corinthian letters and after Galatians and Ephesians, you have Philippians, okay? So... Um, Philippians 1, and we're only going to read two verses today. Now, I promise you, that is likely the only time we're going to look at that little bit of material in the course of this series, but this is important. It sets the stage for everything else, and I'll talk about that as we go, uh, why it's worth looking just at the introduction. But, so, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and again, the question before the house is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, you say in the Psalms that uh, those whose... Delight is in you, and your word are like a tree that is planted by streams of of water that yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And that, boy, is that an appealing image. We would long to be fruitful. We would long to be planted, uh, not like a tumbleweed, but like a, a deeply rooted, fruitful tree. And prospering in all that we do, as the psalmist says. But we know that's connected to being connected to you. And uh, so we ask that you would help us now, help us to understand truth, uh, what truth really is, what reality is, what it means to follow you, what we're meant for, uh, why we're here. Uh, we thank you that, that we have a purpose. There is a plan. Uh, there is design, um, and we can find it in what you've told us. And so we ask that you, with what you've told us, give us ears. Dig ears within uh, the hardened soul, uh, soil of our skulls. Um, and dig receptiveness within the hardened soil of our hearts, we ask. And, and work now as only you can, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, it begins this way. It all began with the forging of the great rings. You know what that is? A lot of you do. That's uh, the beginning of Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, which sets in motion seven minutes of introductory material before the story actually even gets going. And Not only makes, well, that's with the extended version, I think that was actually with the original release. Seven minutes... Of introduction explaining the, the origins the, where the rings came from, and then this whole thing about this war with Sauron. Why? Why? Or if you don't like that analogy, and maybe maybe some of you don't, I'm I'm sorry, I'll pray for you, but 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 if you don't like that one, I got another one, okay? A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> You wanted truth, right? So, okay, so that's, you know, the opening crawl. That's what it's called, the crawl. Th- those words, it sets the, t- the stage for that and at the beginning of every one of the Star Wars movies. It sets the tone and then begins this, this historical background of what's going on. And it tells the story. It sets the stage. Well, uh, why? Because audiences need background. They need historic. well, bear with me, historical perspective for the events in these epics, context matters is where I'm going with this. Introductions don't necessarily have to be filler material. And that's what we have here. It is not filler material. Uh, Paul is writing very much in the traditions of first century Greco-Roman letter writing. And we, we, we know that because of other letters that we've found but, but it's not just that. He's, he's using that in a, in a different way, in a new way, to set the tone, to, to set the stage for everything. He's, t- he's introducing themes here, believe it or not, that are interwoven throughout this letter. And by the way, this is not just an introduction to a letter. it is In a way, you could say it's a double introduction. It's an introduction to a letter. It's an introduction to the Christian life. In these two verses, we see themes being tapped into that get us towards the answer to that question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? Paul's being very intentional, surely, in what he has put down here uh, in, in these first few words. Paul, we, we know, uh, is, is in Rome. He's in writing from a prison cell. He's writing to people many miles away, a church that he he planted some years before, uh, who are under duress, who are struggling because of forces within and without. And that author writes to that audience things about joy, things about unity, things about gratitude and contentment. How How does a man like that, in circumstances like that, write to people like that in circumstances such as their own? How is that possible? Because Paul is holding to basics, to fundamentals, to essentials of the faith, and he is hearkening to these things and pleading with these people, modeling it as well, to do the same. To hold to these fundamentals, these basics, these essentials of the faith. It's as if Paul is saying, in essence, Christ calls us, my beloved, Christ calls us to follow him to a life of discipleship, to a life of following him wherever he leads. And there are things in such a life that we must hold to and never let go. There's your introduction. That's what these verses are about. It's what he's setting the stage for. And I, I would dare say even if, if we begin to get this, maybe even not just setting the stage intellectually as we're studying it, but maybe even stirring the heart, wetting the appetite, if I can mix the metaphors, wanting to know more. Three things, these essentials, these basics, these foundational issues that we've got to know and hold to and keep reminding ourselves and one another of. It. Where are we? That's number one. Where are we? Who are we? That's the second thing. And the third thing is, what do we have? Where are we? Who are we? What do we have? Okay, let's look at these in order. The first one being, where are we? Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, when Paul mentions Philippi, I mean, that's a real place, Archaeologists can take you there today. You can see the ruins, and historians can tell us much about this. I'm going to give you a quick, quick summary of some of what we know historically about this place. We know that it had changed hands, this this city that we know as Philippi, on several occasions. Mid-4th century, King Philip II of Macedon, hence the name Philippi. King Philip II of Macedon took it over, began to... um, I guess you could say, utilize or plunder or at least dig out the gold in, in the area. By the mid-2nd century, the Romans had, shall I say, acquired Philippi. They had taken it. 42 B.C. Is it all B.C.? 42 B.C. Uh, uh, there was a battle. Uh, Antony and Octavius take on and defeat, take out, Brutus and Cassius. Veterans of that war are then settled in Philippi. The city is, it begins to grow. It is defen- its walls are built up. Its defenses are built up. Uh, the culture begins to change. Architecture begins to change. It becomes a Rome away from Rome. It actually becomes legally a Roman colony, which means that all the citizens of Philippi, this city way away from Rome, have all the legal rights and privileges of a citizen way back in Rome. Now, that's important because that comes up, you can see it in Acts, we'll talk about that in a minute, in the founding of this church, but you can see it coming out in the letter. This is how these people think of themselves. This is part of their history. This is part of their experience. This is part of their identity, being Roman citizens and all that that entailed. So we know some things about... The place, we also know some things about the people, Uh, the founding of this church. That's where I want to talk about specifically the church in terms of of, of the people personally, the relationship between Paul and these people. Acts 16, don't go there now. Look at it if if well worth spending some time looking that, kind of reading that in conjunction with this letter. Um, It's informative, Uh, but I will give you a quick summary of what you see in Acts 16 in the founding of, of, of this church. So Paul and his, his, uh, his partners are on the midst of what we know as the second missionary journey. They didn't know it was the second one. Well, they know it was the second one so far, but the second of three. Okay, anyway, so they're on this journey, Paul has a vision, a vision of a man of Macedonia who beckons him to come, to come. Well, they do, and the first person they meet is this woman named Lydia, who is a wealthy, prominent businesswoman and a fearer of God. From there, they move into the city. They meet and encounter this demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. Paul, there's this confrontation that takes place. Paul drives the demon out. The masters of this slave girl, now not having this lucrative business going on with this fortune-teller girl, get really mad, stir up a riot on pretense of patriotism and uh, the religion and spirituality of the day. A, like I said, a riot ensues. Paul and Silas are beaten, locked away in a jail cell. Earthquake comes. Jailer is converted. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on here. Now, don't tell me that 12 years later, when this letter arrives, and that we know that the relationship has been maintained in the, in the interim period. Don't tell me those people hadn't told a story or two to each other. Reflecting, you know, as time went by, you can imagine the stories being told and relayed to others. The memories that are so deep and ingrained as to what had transpired there. Think with me, and we don't know this. This is a supposal, okay? But it's a reasonable supposal. The first time this letter is being read on a Lord's Day gathering of the people there in Philippi, who do you think might have been there? Lydia. the slave girl who's not a girl anymore. Maybe she's married now. Maybe she's got children of her own by now. You've got the jailer. You've got the jailer and his family likely there listening. My, my point is there's a context. There's a context as a people. Is a real flesh and blood people. This is who they are, and it's where they are, where they are in a place that was given towards the worship of false gods, to, to false worship, to idolatry, with undercurrents of money and finance and all of that, with an appeal on the one hand that it's all about us being Roman citizens, and yet at the same time, they are willing to commit grave injustices against people who are Roman citizens. It's a mix. It's a, it's a mix. It's a messy place. that Philippi, where they are, where we are. It's kind of messy. It's not clean. And um, there's a point with that, as Paul just points and says, "You in Philippi, this is where God has you. This is where God has you. Invest there. Invest your lives there. Engage there. It's not time for a holy huddle. It's not time to, to to hide away." It's time to engage. It's time to be salt and light. A city on a hill, there in that city. That's where God has you. That's your mission field. It's messy. It's messy. It's your mission field. But it's also, it's not your home. There's tension in that. But they're both true. And we need to think about that ourselves. This is our mission field. Dig roots in there. Make a home there. But it's not your home. Understand? Because at the same time, while we're to throw ourselves into that place, into those people, our Philippi, we've got to understand that the people around us do not share our deepest hopes and aspirations and dreams. Not ultimately. Or if I can use a word that Paul uses over 20-some 20, 20 times in this letter, Joy. Joy, ours is supposed to be a joy that is so much different than those around us. A joy that's that's not about giddiness, it's not about happiness, it's not about a fake plastic smile. It's about something that runs deeper. A deeper, if I can put it this way, a deeper gladness, a contentment, that may even weep in sorrow while yet being joyful at the same time time. It's a complex thing, this Christian joy. But ultimately it's never undone. It can be shaken, but never undone by circumstances. Well, see, That's we're different. This is our mission field, but it's not our home. Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? That's the first essential. There's some things we've got to hold to in walking in, in life with Christ, with Him, following Him. first thing to understand is where we are. The second is who we are. Equally as important. Uh, you can't get away from this either. So let's go back to verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So, it's interesting, it's worth noting, um, unlike some most of Paul's other letters, he does not point out the fact that he is an apostle. He doesn't say that. It's not that now he's like, you know, not, but he just doesn't Remind them of that, and likely because he doesn't need to, because of their experience of what they had shared in this ongoing rapport and relationship that had, you know. But so what they need to be reminded, though, is of something else, and that's what he emphasizes. We are servants of Christ Jesus. Some of you might even have a footnote there that takes you down to the bottom of the page and tells you that the word "servant" can also be translated as "slave" or "bond servant." So, what Paul is saying is that, that we, are, we belong to Jesus in, in every way that that term means of ownership and possession. We belong, we are not his or anyone else's. We are, excuse me, we're not ours or anyone else's. We are his, his possession, his people, his slaves but conversely there's freedom in being his slave because every other master that's the bondage that's where life gets you crushed but not enslavement to him enslavement to him there's freedom Paul is, you see he's modeling something here for his readers it's not, it's clearly not just that Paul and Timothy were the only ones who are to be regarded that way. I mean, he's he's making a point here. It it drives us even further, makes another point in in describing them in the way that he does as saints. It's the the other point in who we are, saints in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be thinking at this point, well, great, well, that rules me out straight out. I'm no saint. Well, yes and no. The, the popular we're, we're we're hung up here on the pop the, the the way that word is popularly used and the way it's been mangled and skewed by certain aspects of the church, where after you die, you're named because of all you've accomplished, you're called a saint, and that is completely contrary to what the Bible says about in terms of this word saint. If you're a follower of Jesus with bloody knees and a bloody lip and a really messy life, it doesn't matter. You are a saint. You're a saint. Sainthood is something conferred by him. It is not something accomplished by us. It is not something that we do and therein earn. It's something that Jesus has done and earned for us and conferred and given to us, a title, a status, saint. Holy One, those called out, sent out for his purposes into this world. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are a saint. A saint. Paul presses that a little harder. I think he helps us see that even more as he goes further in the class. Saints in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This is terminology, again, that Paul uses some 20 times in this little letter here. That, that it's speaking of our union with Jesus, our oneness with Jesus, this bond that we have with Jesus, meaning that His work, His living and dying and rising, we are connected to. All that He has done, all that He has accomplished, we share. We are in Him. It's hard for us to get our minds around, but it's true. The the New Testament, Paul in particular, stresses this again and again and again. It's because you are one with Jesus. How does He see you? How does God the Father see you today, right now, my fellow saints? You're in Jesus. This very moment. doesn't matter what you've done or failed to do. You're a saint in Jesus. One with Him. It's how you are seen from heaven itself this very moment. And that. why is that important? Because knowing who you are, not want to be, not wish to be, not could have been, are. Knowing who you are changes how you live. When you own it, when you embrace it, when it's getting down into the bones. Knowing who you are changes, transforms, it affects everything in terms of how you live. Let me give you an example. Some of you following the Olympics, know that Victor Ahn of Russia yesterday won the men's 1,000 meter short skate. It was actually aired last night, but it was earlier in the day he actually won it. Um, Funny thing about Victor Ahn of Russia, you know he used to be Ahn Hyun Soo of South Korea? Triple gold medal winner back in 2006 of that same race. But sometime... Not long after that, he began to suffer some injuries, including a fractured kneecap, such that then he was unable to be on the South Korean Olympic team in 2010. It became clear to him that he wasn't going to be allowed back or make it back onto the team because others had kind of, you know, matriculated up. So he decided to shop his services. And in 2012, became a Russian citizen, now skates under that flag for that team with that uniform, and just won gold for Russia yesterday. You don't think how he skated after that? I mean, if you saw it, he picked up two flags, and they were not, and he did a little victory thing around the ice, and that was not the flags of South Korea. Who you think, who you know yourself to be, is my point in this. Who you know yourself to be affects how you live. That's his identity. That's who he skates for. Who do we skate, live for? Who do you know yourself to be? How is that significant? If you read through this letter, which we will in the coming weeks, we will see undercurrents in this letter of issues in this church of the problems of pride and an overinflated sense of self. And so Paul has to call them to unity, to oneness in Christ, be what you are, the church, one body. He has to call them back to that and remind them that they are servants, bond slaves of Jesus and saints in Jesus. Now, what difference does that make in the issues of unity and pride and problems and Tensions and stuff like... It makes all the difference. When you understand who you are, when that's your baseline, when that's your gut, when that's what you're operating out of and how you see the person that's in the mirror and how you see the person who irritates you so, where there's this tension, where there's this thing that's been said or done, it affects not just how you see yourself, but then directly flowing out of that, it affects how we see each other. The rivalries, the jealousies, the irritations can't stand the heat of knowing that thaws when you know you're a servant of Jesus and a saint in Him as well. That's why it's important. It's vital for us to see that. So I would just say this morning for all of us, if, if you know, maybe someone's coming to mind or some ones are coming to mind, trace your troubles. Trace those relational troubles back to this question. I'm not saying it's all your fault. I don't, I don't mean to say that, but is it possible I mean some of it is? Maybe 1%? A half? 39? Do I hear 40? Trace your troubles and ask yourself: have I, to what degree have I or not? Been living in this situation as a servant of Jesus and a saint in Him as well. Last thing, these are all three vital where we are, who we are, these essentials, these basics, these fundamentals, what we have, what we have. Verses 1 and 2 Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is, is asking on behalf of these people something that actually they already have. But what he's asking, in a, he's asking the Lord, it's a prayer in essence. He's asking that they would know it, that they would hold it, that they would embrace it, that they would lay hold of what they already have, this grace and peace that is theirs. What does that mean, these gifts? There's two things, the gifts and the giver uh, being alluded to here. The gifts, what are they? Grace. Grace, God's unmerited favor, his blessings Poured out, not just on the undeserving. That's not strong enough. The ill-deserving. You understand the difference between those two things. We, it's not just we deserve nothing. We deserve so much worse than we receive. We are ill-deserving. And that is grace. That is grace. And peace, these are connected This is shalom, the old Hebrew word shalom, which doesn't mean just absence of conflict and fighting and quarreling and unrest. No, it's so much more. It's the presence of um, wholeness and a fittedness and and, and a harmony, a sense of uh, the way things are meant to be at every level uh, between us and God within ourselves, with one another, with the creation itself. It's a rich term. The shalom, the shalom of God, the peace of God. That is ours. How is it ours? It's only by the grace of God that we have the peace of God. That's how those things are connected. And Paul is praying that we would lay hold, his audience, that we, they, would lay hold of these things and know it and live out of it because of, well, the gifts and then the giver. where What's the source? Where does this come from? God the Father is the first part of the answer. God the Father. Now, I know you, you, you went through VBS, and so you're like, yeah, got it. God the Father. No, right But that's a radical idea, really, in its context. It was hinted at in the Old Testament. It becomes plain and explicit and clear in the New. God, our Father in heaven. This divine being, this this God is Father with all the power and wisdom and tenderness and strength and faithfulness that that connotes. Everlasting, never ending, eternal, never exhausted. Our Father grace and peace from him. But there's a second thing Paul says, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know you went to VBS, or maybe you heard about it, and you're like, okay, that, right, whatever. No, don't skate past this either. This is equally shocking because of the, the, the conjoining that Paul is doing here. Think with me. What is he saying? He's putting the Lord Jesus Christ right by God the Father, meaning what? They're both divine. They're both God. This this is, we're getting a hint already that's going to be unfolded in the course of this letter of who Jesus is, of how Paul sees Jesus. Now don't take that for granted, churchy people. This man who grew up in Nazareth, raised as a carpenter's boy, is God. Now smoke that for a few minutes. That's shocking. And we need to wrestle with that. Embrace that. Take that to heart. Know what we have and where it's from. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Why is this significant even in this letter and for us? Again, Paul's audience, not just speaking of Paul. Paul himself, of course, had ample reason to be tempted towards being discouraged and disillusioned. Right, Because of his circumstances, oh God, after all I've done for you, and I'm in a Roman jail cell, thanks. Um, I think it was Sister Therese who said, God, you would have more friends if you treated the ones you had a little better. But then there's the audience. The audience and and who Paul is writing to here, and they too had ample reason to be discouraged. And what is Paul saying? Let me show you the way through. Let me show you the way through this. Let's go to the roots. Let's go to the heart, which is the heart. The heart of the issue is the heart. Let's go to the heart and cultivate gratitude and contentment, taking a step back and asking hard questions being brutally honest, as the Psalms model for us. God, I, I, in this mess, as I see it, mess, I don't have what I believe I need. But what do I have? What do I have still? And the things that I say I need... Do I? And the things I say I deserve, do I? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His ways are good, better than we know, puzzling, maddening, maybe, But they're good. So wrapping this up, coming around the other side of the barn, let me just say this. We never outgrow our need to grow in the basics. We never outgrow our need to grow in the basics. Some of you, you know, I've talked about winter sports and Olympic sports. Let me come back to the U.S. of A. And Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers. Some of you may know this story. It's told in different ways, but I think I got it. To the sources, and so I think this is the right way it's supposed to be told. So, Vince Lombardi, crusty guy, the coach of the Packers, and it's her glory days, their glory days, um, was known uh, to to begin preseason training in a rather strange way. And his players, the veteran players on that team, though they be half the age and twice the size of this guy, knew what was coming and dreaded it. Because every Preseason, he would assemble them in the locker room, and there they would sit, and Lombardi would come in, and he would stand before this assembly and look at them and stare at them with this icy sort of stare that withered them all, and then he would hold up a football and say these words, gentlemen, this is a football, signaling to everyone in the room what was about to take place over the coming weeks that he was going to break things down for them. He was going to break them down. Down to the essentials. Down to the basics. Down to the fundamentals. And that's how they won. Because they didn't stray from those things. Okay, that applies in the world of athletics. You know that. It also applies in this realm as well to the Christian life. Why? One, two reasons. One, because of what the basics are. I'm giving you two reasons why we cannot stray from the basics. One, because of what they are. The basics of the Christian life are simple, but not simplistic. Meaning, simple. A child can understand them. Praise God. I was talking to a father just earlier in the the, the morning about his his child coming to faith. Praise God. But they're not simplistic. We're talking here... Roger, I should have asked you about fathoming and depths of sea and that kind of stuff. But bear with me. I don't know what I'm talking about at this point. But these are depths unfathomable. These are summits unscalable. So because of what the basics in and of themselves are, we can never stop growing in them. That's about the basics. Then there's something about us. This is the second reason. We're so slow. We're so slow in the school of discipleship. We are remedial learners at best. Look at the disciples in the Gospels. You're like, when do you get it? When do we? When do I? We're so slow. We are so slow to learn and so quick to forget because none of this comes naturally. So we cannot assume we've arrived ever. We never outgrow our need of these things these essentials, these foundations, these basics. So may God be gracious to us in these months ahead and help us be teachable and to learn much from Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for showing us Yourself, who You are and why You've come and the implications of that. And then the calling that's made clear also in Your Word as to where we are and who we are and what You've given And all the implications of that. And we ask that you would help us to not, oh Lord, protect us from the folly of thinking ourselves to be beyond or above these things, but rather to be ever-growing, longing to to learn and to grow. We we do commit the study of this letter to you in the weeks and months ahead, and uh, we ask that you would help us, yes, absolutely, this is a different culture, different setting, but it's on a different planet. And these are, not, these are different issues and concerns, but not radically so, and, and the heart, human heart is still the same. So Jesus, we ask that you would show us yourself. Show us yourself, we pray. Amen.